Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hey, all And Zoe. Hey, everyone. Today we're going to be talking about, broadly, amateur athletics and um, the sort of uh, funny definition amateurism has taken on over time because various loopholes have been found for it by whatever governing body needs those loopholes to exist in order to justified not paying the athletes that it is making money off of, basically. Probably the clearest example in the United States of amateurism as just a naked excuse for exploitation is in the realm of college athletics. Uh, The NCAA has governed college sports in the U.S. since the early 1900s and has, for the past several decades, relied upon basically a legal fiction that its student athletes were not workers and could not be paid or else it would risk jeopardizing the essence of college athletics themselves. You know, you could not have college athletics if they were getting paid, said the NCAA. Well, a couple months ago, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, actually all this was kind of a sham and even the conservative justices on the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do this. You have to allow athletes to be able to make money off of at least their name, image, and likeness, which has been the focus of a lot of legal wrangling. The ruling effectively allowed starting, starting, I think, the 1st of July or so for college athletes to get sponsorship deals, get uh, any sort of marketing deal that they could negotiate themselves in in a way that they hadn't been allowed to before. Here's where I'll trail off and leave it to one of you two to... Can I just say before we actually start discussing this in any serious depth that um, I I can't believe that friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch, mm-hmm. listens to our, our show so often that he decided to make the first labor-friendly decision. Uh, the second, actually, because we, we talked about his very narrow decision last year in a couple of the cases that Zoe had actually been on to discuss before. That was uh, Gorsuch, if I remember correctly, who wrote that decision as well. But it was very weird to see Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, like the Beavis and Butthead Mm -hmm. of the Supreme Court, uh, the prep version, I guess, going aggressively after the NCAA on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are also kind of other motives at play here that have to do with capitalism in general. So just because an athlete is allowed to pursue a sponsorship doesn't necessarily mean they're not being exploited in some way through that sponsorship, but they're still making money outside of the very narrow definition of their performance that's given by the NCAA. So I think there's there's a lot to unpack there, but it's definitely more athlete friendly and more athlete agency friendly, so to speak that this is being permitted now. 
Yeah. Uh, Just to read a bit from Brett Kavanaugh's ruling of of all things here on Punching Uh. Out, um, quote, nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate, which the worst person you know just made a great point. Yeah. I'm glad that you added that second part because otherwise it would have been two episodes in a row that I would have mentioned that what United States does Brett Kavanaugh live in? You can absolutely <laughs> get away with not paying a fair market wage anywhere in this country. We've seen that happen over the past few months. No, it, it's he, he pointed that out, and he was apparently unusually aggressive during oral arguments, which I'm not going to get into the reasons why, uh, why I would speculate on that. But it, it is, you know, allowing athletes to, to profit off of their – uh, name, image, and likeness. It's weird because the NCAA already had, like, they, a few of the thousand cuts had already been laid down for this decision ahead of time. Uh, the NCAA had already had to make some exceptions in when they allowed endorsements, and we'll get into some of that later on in the show. But especially where it concerned basically, like, not causing international incidents, basically. <laughs> They'd already had to start allowing those to happen, even for college athletes who represented other countries. And now, of course, that that kind of allowed the subduction, right? This finally brings up this ruling and, and forces that out into the open. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a lot of cool endorsements. Like a, There's like barbecue restaurants sponsoring <laughs> the Arkansas Razorbacks offensive line. Like they, There's a lot of very silly, fun stuff going on. I there's know that's a, not... Quarterback for Auburn named Bo Nix, who landed himself a Bojangles uh, sponsor. Excellent. That's so, incredible. So there's there's a lot of very silly, very fun stuff happening, which I know is not going to be the majority of what we do. But I know that that, that is out there. And, and I think a lot of athletes are being very, not, not just smart, but they're being very creative in kind of how they approach this. And a lot of teams are being very creative in how they're going to approach this uh, in the same way that like minor league teams tend to be. Uh, they tend to be a lot more responsive to sort of the involvement of the community precisely because of this veneer of amateurism, of this veneer of, you know, we're just down the road from all these families that come to watch us. I also think it's very interesting that this is happening in the NCAA because the NCAA is specifically managing college athletes and ostensibly the reason that they're doing this is because they're getting an education but the NCAA has clearly become something that encompasses so much more than that it's its own thing at this point that doesn't have anything to do with education or being at school necessarily it's like it's an interesting symbiotic relationship or you might even say it could be parasitic in some ways just because it's grown alongside the college and higher education industry in the United States in such a grand and outsized way. The higher education industry in the United States is a multi-billion dollar industry on its own that takes money from people under the auspices of providing them an education. And it's questionable in some cases whether that education is worth its market value to the person who receives it. But college athletics kind of inhabit this middle world where some people are really just at school to play a sport at school and it's like a thing. And in other situations, it's like kind of a farm system for professional leagues, in which case like allowing athletes to begin profiting off of their image while they're in school makes a lot more sense. That gives it different context for sure. 
and and this is by the way kind of a wild thing about the u.s in general like i know that there are school-based sports in a lot of other countries but i remember you know i'm from san juan and i remember a few years back going home and seeing that there was a banner for the university of puerto rico sports teams and being like they they have teams I'd never known this. I never knew that they had names. I knew they were intramural or like club sports, but apparently not. They There are official teams attached to these universities now, or at least some of them. And that was kind of one of the things that I always found wild coming up here, how important college athletics were. The only people I knew who cared about that stuff growing up were people whose parents went to those universities. They typically didn't have an organic reason to care. Yeah, uh- College sports has the circumstances around it in the United States are wholly unique. It is it's a historical oddity that the U.S. has this real enterprise of college sports. You know, we've talked in the past about the NCAA and the sort of snake pit of rules and regulations it has placed athletes in up until two months ago regarding what they could and could not do. Famously, I, I think as momentum was building towards a break like this happening. There was a story about how players in the final four were having trouble, like just putting food on the table at the end of the day, because they weren't even allowed to get cream cheese on a bagel. The rules they were, were they, that strict. First of all, that's offensive. They were only allowed to get plain cream cheese. If it was flavored, that was a problem. This is the sort of like granular detail that the NCAA was restricting athletes on as far as what constituted an unethical benefit they could gain. Reggie Bush, who was a star running back at USC, like one of the most electrifying college athletes that I can remember, had to give up his Heisman Trophy for being the best player in the country because his parents accepted a house in San Diego from some guy who wasn't even connected to the University of Southern California in any way. It was just, this is the sort of thing that... And and so it put athletes who oftentimes are coming from poor backgrounds in these really tough situations where they had to turn down offers that could have put them in financial comfort in order to maintain eligibility to play college sports, which... It was all a farce now, given that the floodgates have opened and Babylon has not fallen as a result, so to speak. Is that the next film in the series? There are, I think, obviously other um, potential negative consequences to this. I don't know how much we want to get into this, but I do know that at least one university has prohibited its athletes from accepting sponsorship from Barstool Sports, which recently launched a college athlete sponsorship venture, which specifically is tied to not the platform's long history of misogyny, racism, homophobia, and transphobia, and general anti-worker behavior as well. I believe they tried to prevent their employees from unionizing last year or something like that. Like It's because they are partially owned by a gambling company. So it really, it kind of shows the motivations behind keeping this amateur label on these things. Like it's not necessarily about protecting the athlete or doing what's best for the athlete or creating this environment where they can really thrive. It's more about trying to keep their money safe and not making people think that there might be some other ulterior motive for why we're doing all of this, right? And that was the University of Louisville, I believe, that 
told its athletes they can't participate in sponsorships with Barstool? They, they, they could only apparently advise them. They couldn't order them not to. But they yeah. could say, like, here's some reasons why you shouldn't. And they, they had to hope, you know, that these athletes would say no. The intrusion of massive gambling operations into sports and, you know, legal operations and whatnot into every level of sports is, is kind of one of the big stories of the late 2010s, early 2020s. And it does kind of enable a lot of really perverse motives on these things because obviously, you know, NCAA scandals tended to be athlete X took uh, a gift that he shouldn't have or this school uh, recruited in ways that they shouldn't have and so on. But I would argue that, you know, at worst, what those do is make one program slightly better than the other. We are now introducing, through sponsorships like Barstools, a massive perverse motive throughout the sport that can have potentially massive upheaval throughout it. And we're not, other than us three and like a few other people, we're not really questioning the impact of that, which I find rather uh, disturbing. I think it's just we've become so desensitized to these types of craven motives, especially in sports, because, you know, all, almost all of the revenue in sports, like the real revenue is tied to advertising sponsorships and like big luxury packages. When you talk about gate sales, that's usually not a, the biggest deal in terms of revenue for the major sports. It's it's stuff other than that like sure you want to sell tickets and get a full arena because people like that but the main people who really like it and will give you lots of money for it are advertisers to have like you know their their logo on the boards or on the center of the court or the ice or whatever so it's we're, we're just we're completely we, we've already divorced sports so completely from these pure amateur motives using air quotes that people claim that they're upholding that it just, it seems normal at this point, even if the pure amateur motives in the first place weren't necessarily so pure. The sort of uh, name image likeness ruling has um, left people who support workers broadly, like those of us on the left here on this show, uh, in the awkward position of sort of having to celebrate some gross commercialization of the sport and, you know, other ways like on the whole, it's not ideal that some cryptocurrency will be sponsoring, I don't know, UNC's quarterback next season. But it's good that UNC's quarterback can be rewarded for his labor. This is a hypothetical example, but I do believe some cryptocurrency has you know, purchased a college athlete sponsorship. If it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen very mm -hmm. shortly. There will be NFTs before long, I'm sure. I think there already are. Yeah. Speaking of NFTs, and this might be a nice segue into um, kind of the next topic that we are planning on discussing, but if it's not appropriate, we can always move that. So I, re I recently followed Michaela Maroney, um, former U.S. national team gymnast on Instagram, and she recently released an NFT. So I thought that that was very interesting. Like this is her, she's retired from the national team at this point, And this is like one of her, you know, exciting things that she's doing right now to make money. It's interesting the, the paths that we take to uh, create, I guess, non-fungible income for people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because we've, we've built a society in which the key 
to having any kind of financial stability is having passive income or even inertial income, you know, in some cases. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of like a gem membership. You forget to cancel it. So you just keep giving, you know, an institution some of your money over and over again. It makes, so where I'm going with this is one of the reasons why this is undeniably a good thing is I'm also trying to think of how many college athletes get career ending injuries before they ever hit the pros, you know? So that was one of the biggest cases. And one of the things that people would talk about is one of the biggest arguments for paying the players. It, it's not a good thing if you're never going to get to play in the NBA or NFL, but if you at least have a couple hundred thousand dollars that you can sit on or some money that you socked away or you were able to buy a house or you were able to get yourself out of some debt or help out your parents or what have you with that money that you earn doing that, then at least that gives you a bit of a leg up going into it. Whereas the current regime is pretty much you get whatever medical care the NCAA mandates, which is somewhat minimal, and then you're on your own. And you get to be along with the rest of us working stiffs for the rest of your life, uh, having lost out on that chance. And uh, for a lot of these, you know, uh, one of these articles, and obviously this is an overestimate, but one of these articles was saying something about like a certain athlete could make $965,000 a year. And in that particular case was kind of crazy. I don't think it's out of the question for some of these guys, it's especially in the big draw sports of college football and college basketball, I, I think it's very possible that you could see some athletes make decent bank. And obviously that puts us in this weird spot where we've been given something that we should celebrate, but the way that we've done it is by arguably making things worse in the long term. Like our 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 victories are always coated with a little bit of mud. A yeah. very gooey mud. It definitely would probably create ethics and equity issues for the universities themselves at a certain point if it's determined that someone is becoming a millionaire from their participation in this NCAA sports program. Meanwhile, say they can't accept a certain amount of students on financial aid because they don't they themselves don't have the money to do so. And it definitely would create a class inequality between those players and regular students, quote unquote, more so than there already is, because that's already considered a problem that athletes may be given special privileges as students that other non-athletic students don't receive. I've been told they absolutely don't. They don't get any of those special privileges. Nothing is ever, uh, they, they never get any help. They have to do all the same things every other college student does, plus sports. They have the <laughs> exact same life. That's what I've been told repeatedly. Yeah, I've, I've heard the same thing. Interesting. Interesting. Well, ultimately, letting players accept sponsorship deals is only sort of half the battle for athletes because ultimately, who's making revenue off of the athletes? It, it's the colleges themselves. They are making large sums of money based on the performance of their players, and they have so far dodged the bill for that. You know, coaches are allowed to make multi million dollar salaries from their schools, but the athletes are only given you know, some small meal stipends and scholarship. Their pay is capped at whatever the cost of tuition is. And so even though this is something that we can say is probably good, you know, letting athletes make, get these sponsorship deals, the NCAA remains a problem because it remains committed to the idea of student athletes as 
you know, some people who are not workers technically and thus not entitled to the pay that workers are entitled to. And I want to say something real quick uh, here. Here's the thing. If you define a college as an educational institution, stay with me for a second because I know that they are not anymore. But let's 72 point air quote college as meaning the part of it that actually teaches things. The college is not making money off the athletics. You talk to anybody who works, and I will have said this on the previous week's podcast as well, but you talk to anybody who works in athletics as like a trainer, you talk to support staff and that, they will tell you that that money stays completely within the athletics program unless they need it to do one of those weird accounting tricks that makes tax authorities hate you. Unless you're doing that, that money only gets used for athletics purposes. And as somebody who went to college because it was the one way to get a job in the United States, to get a job that paid better and so on, to in some ways learn to speak English properly, quote unquote again. But as somebody who did it for the academics, the idea, I, I always find it kind of insulting that we talk about this like colleges are using this money and plunging it back into the educational endeavors. They are not. But what I will tell you is that the moment they have to pay athletes, I know exactly where that's going to come out of, and it's going to come out of faculty. It's going to come out of educational expenses. They're going to turn around and do that because they already do it at high schools across the nation. Uh, those that are known for their basketball programs or baseball programs or whatever, they're already doing that. Colleges will start doing it as well, which doesn't mean they shouldn't have to, but it does mean that there better be accountability when they do. 100%. I, you know, It's definitely going to be... A situation where the actual education part of this whole scheme will suffer as a result of the profits more so than it already is, because clearly that's already happening. I, I think that's all well put for this segment. Um, we're going to come back, and after this break, we will talk about the Olympics and another realm of amateur athleticism that uh, has some issues. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Zoe. Hey. In the first segment of the show, we talked a bit about the NCAA, which after decades of preventing athletes from making so much as a dime off of their name, now has opened the floodgates to a whole new world of questionable sponsorships and endorsement possibilities for players in its sports. I'm going to move on in this segment to talking about the Olympics, which is a, another you know governing body that has a long history of defining amateurism in its own terms for its own benefit. Probably the place to start here is in the most recent Olympics, which just finished a few weeks ago now, um, the 2020 Olympics, as they were branded uh, a year late. W one of the defining stories of that Olympics was uh, Simone Biles, a U.S. gymnast who had um, so impressed the world in 2016 in the Rio Olympics. She withdrew from the um, artistic team finals, I believe is the name of the event, uh, citing, you know, mental health issues. She had what uh, 
gymnasts refer to as the twisties, which is just sort of a mental block that really um, impedes your ability to compete at the highest level. She would go on to withdraw from a couple more events before winning a bronze in the balance beam final. And I think, you know, her withdrawal really shone a light on some of the, um, number one, a lot of the pressure that is upon athletes in these Olympics, but also the mental health concerns of them and how they re- respond to that. It was something that um, sparked a lot of conversations and many of them not very good at all, but um, some of them were in fact worthwhile. I think one of the most interesting things about uh, Simone Biles' withdrawal from a labor perspective, it really highlighted how the resources and the support that are available to these athletes really depends on their national governing body, which leads to immense inconsistency. Obviously, Simone Biles was also a victim of Larry Nasser, who sexually abused gymnasts through the University of Michigan and through the USA gymnastics program for many, many years. And it was really like her well-being was subject to this organization that really didn't do anything for a long time to protect her or other athletes. As you see now with the Carolis leaving the USA Gymnastics Program, with Nasser being in jail, and with just a very different environment for Simone Biles, this is probably like the safest and healthiest she's ever been as an athlete and as a person, I I would venture to say, like, just because the support structure around her has improved so much. And you could definitely tell that her teammates and her coaches were in full support of her decision, which is not something that would have happened a few years ago. When we t- but when we talk about like Simone Biles being an amateur gymnast or an amateur athlete at the Olympics, which is this event that is built on the idea of amateur competition, you really see that these are high-level competitors who require the type of support and structure that we would normally refer to as professional. What necessarily does it mean that they're that they're amateurs? They so they receive a stipend from the national governing body, which, depending on the sport, it may not be huge. Um, some athletes through the national governing body do make a living wage, but that's not not common at all, especially in some of the lesser known sports. So, if Simone is being paid a living wage by USA Gymnastics to compete, does that not make her a professional in some way? What makes someone an amateur worthy to qualify at the Olympics? That changes all the time. Like, it used to be that they didn't allow NHL players or Major League Baseball players to compete in the Olympics, and then suddenly they did for question mark, who knows why. It's just they can't be getting paid by their other organization while they're playing the Olympics. It's a very situational thing that really just changes kind of like the wind depending on who's going to profit from it oh there's that word profit yeah yeah it's that you know as as somebody who i i remember in 2004 the puerto rican basketball team they they defeated the u.s by 19 points it was it was not the last time that the u.s would be defeated in that year but it was the first time it had happened in a while and instantly the coverage of American sports media regarding the team that year was that it had no star power, which it absolutely did. But I guess what I'm going with this is it is, first of all, it is a weird linguistic thing that we've done to take the word amateur, which I don't know what Webster's dictionary defines it as, but you know, means lover of, right? That's, that's its literal meaning. And we've taken that to mean both somebody who does things for the love of the game 
and also mean a lower level of skill. And that is a weird sort of conjunction that we've put it through because it creates this idea that if you're not getting paid enough for what you're doing, then you must be worse at it, which is clearly not true in many of these sports. Some of these people are the best in the world in what they do, and they're not making a living doing it. But it has nothing, their level of skill has nothing to do with the economics of the situation for them. No, that that makes 100% sense. I totally understand what you mean. It's, um, it's a trick that we've played in order to justify paying people less and to justify providing inadequate or inconsistent or unreliable resources to people, even if they are the greatest at what they do. If, we're, if we call them amateurs, we by nature are inclined to give them less. Mm-hmm. I love that you mentioned for the love of the game, because that's a phrase that comes up constantly in women's hockey, to treat playing professional women's hockey almost like a conscription, like an obligatory service that you must do in order to be worthy or something. When, when we talk about paying women's hockey players a living wage, it's always treated as like a bare minimum thing and not as like, oh, these are the best players in the world, we have to pay them. It's, it's always used to justify giving someone less. So I, I think what you said makes total sense. And I will add, by the way, if you want a little bit more um, of like connective tissue between segment one and segment two here, the NCAA, some of the cuts that I referred to, some of the little like uh, beginnings of rumblings of having to give athletes chances to earn money are precisely that Olympians were allowed to earn some endorsement money on their name, image, and likeness, even if they were college athletes. And foreign athletes that were college athletes in the U.S. but represented their nations at Olympics and other international competitions had to be allowed to earn that money because otherwise the U.S. would anger other countries more than it already has. <laughs> so there was there was always kind of this level of if these athletes are coming to the U.S. to train and get an education and work under certain coaches and whatnot, but they play or compete for another country, then they had to give them that leg up. And it's a very, it reifies in in very stark terms, the nature of American imperialism, that you've got athletes coming from all over the world to be at American schools, compete under American coaches, and then go back home to represent their own countries. It's like, well, and if we're really going to have the spirit of amateurism, this wouldn't be happening. You know, there would be programs in, and and I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not anti-internationalist when I'm saying this, but it's messed up that they have to come here to get the high level coaching that they need so that they can go back and compete for their countries in these competitions. Yeah. They like people should be able to access the resources to succeed regardless of where they are, regardless of their backgrounds and regardless of whether or not they're willing to sign their uh, their lives over to the NCAA or to an American university. Just to give a bit of background on amateurism at the Olympics, the modern Olympics were founded with the idea that all the athletes would be amateurs, and they took this principle very seriously. If you were found to have made money, even playing a different sport than what you competed in in the Olympics, you could have your medals stripped away from you. Uh, this happened to Jim Thorpe, a famous American athlete in the early 20th century. And over time, this 
they've become less strict in this definition of amateurism. And it has really been on a sport by sport basis, whether they still require this. I believe now wrestling is maybe the only sport left in the Olympics that requires its competitors to be amateurs, perhaps because pro wrestling has different connotations. Who could say? No, no, that would be be funnier. Noah, you mentioned um, basketball famously in 1992 was the first time that professional NBA players were allowed to compete in the Olympics. Uh, Puerto Rico's win in 2004 was the first time the U S lost following that uh, professionalization of the Olympics. Good. <laughs> and after some struggles, increasingly you're seeing as a result of, and this is credited to the dream team and um, the star power they had at the Olympics. You're seeing that they're having a lot more trouble winning gold medals because the level of play has risen worldwide because the popularity of the sport has grown. It was very weird to see reporters basically trying to bait Greg Popovich into saying the rest of the world isn't allowed to be good at basketball <laughs> and him refusing to do it, by the way, he was an absolute bench about it, but it was even the way that they set up these tournaments, which I admit freely that I am not familiar with like FIBA or any of these other international federations, but it seems to me that a lot of these tournament rules are set up to give countries like the U S that are going to send guys who have the good luck to play pro multiple bites at the apple in a way that say like the world cup doesn't really after the group stage and so on so it it was kind of weird that the u.s could lose a bunch of times and still in the end walk out with the gold medal if i think if it was a sport that the u.s was less interested in meddling in i don't think the rules would support that Right. But just as with the you know NCAA, this definition of amateurism was hugely limiting for the athletes themselves. It meant that if you didn't have some other source of income, you could not participate in the highest level of your sport, you know, which for many of these sports, that's the Olympics. You know, you can point to some sports and say that there are other competitions held in higher regards, but in something like swimming, nothing beats the Olympics. And if you had to be an amateur to participate, then it's not something that you could really make your full-time job unless you already had a great deal of wealth to your name, which is why for many decades, when the IOC was stricter about enforcing its amateurism policy, the games themselves were largely restricted to the wealthy. Yeah. And amateurism and like the idea of being an amateur athlete definitely had a different connotation at that time. I recently read a book about the history of The Office um, by Nikhil Saval. It's called Cubed. And it was basically about like the kind of changing cultural attitudes. Like one part of the book is about is about the changing cultural attitudes about like physical labor and athletic activity and how like transitioning that into like a hobby context as opposed to like a labor context as in you did it on the docks as part of your job like that was very kind of unpopular at the time among certain people so it really like creates a narrower interest for these types of things even on its face just because it was kind of considered gauche or hoity-toity to be an amateur athlete and now I think we still have some of that lingering cultural attitude about being an amateur athlete, quote unquote, 
we kind of see them as like, oh, they're privileged. They get everything. You know, they're the best in the world. They get all the, all these sponsorships and, you know, there's glamour to it. They get to be a role model. They get to be famous in some cases, but it's still labor. It's still work. And now they're not doing it as like a hobby on their, you know, independently wealthy income, like someone might have been back in at the turn of the century. It's quite different now because we've changed the process as to how you can enter these sorts of relationships and enter these sorts of training. And and I think one thing that, uh, at least in the U.S., again, can't be underestimated here is how much the U.S. was willing to pour into supporting its athletes when the goal of the Olympics was to beat the tar out of the USSR in medals. I, I remember learning that when before Bob Beeman made that that record-breaking jump, that amazing 29-foot jump at the 1968 Olympics, for part of the previous two years, now I, I don't know that he was paid for doing this, but he joined a track and field team called the Houston Striders. These are not a thing anymore. You don't get to have a track and field team for your city that has a name the same way that a basketball or baseball team has one. Part of the problem, again, at least in the U.S., is that we've given up on a lot of these sports past the high school or maybe college level and really narrowed our our vision down to the sports that, theoretically anyway, earn you some amount of money for playing. And then we've taken that definition of what being an athlete is and we've exported it to all the athletes that aren't making that kind of money or even close and yeah. that don't have the same prestige and the same privilege associated with the the competitions that they're in so it is kind of like a lack of it's almost a lot i mean there's a general malaise we've got but it's almost like a lack of imagination really the idea that that we that there isn't an an athletic experience outside playing for one of the big four big five if you want to go there major leagues yeah i also i recently heard about a guy who was trying to start a professional swimming league like an international professional swimming league because he felt that it was unfair that the Olympics were the only like big stage for competitive swimming. And people just hated this idea because the IOC has such a grip on this industry, so to speak. It's like we've created a monopoly of sorts of this faux amateurism. I I think we'd be remiss if we talked about the Olympics and didn't address beyond just the athletes themselves and this idea of amateurism, there are a lot of real problems with the Olympics, how they are awarded and how cities and countries use them as, you know, often propaganda tools, often ways of urban renewal is the polite term, but it means more cops and more criminalization of homelessness in almost every city where the Olympics show up. This is something that you saw in Vancouver and when they hosted the Winter Olympics in London in 2012. You know, there's a big security presence around events like the Olympics and also the World Cup that rarely goes away after the tournament has left. There was a story from these Tokyo Olympics about a man who was evicted from his home in 1964 to make way for the Olympics then, and then evicted again for the 2020 Olympics 50 years later, because you know the needs of people for housing makes way to the needs of the Olympics for venues. And, and this is why you've seen opposition to Olympics hosting bids in cities like Chicago, which had to reject the Olympics effectively. And 
pass that buck along to LA where there is, I'm sure, a budding protest against those Olympics. Oh, um, it's not budding. It's it's real. It's <laughs> big. It's called No Olympics LA. And they are extremely not interested. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, too, it would be one thing. I mean, it would be bad enough. Don't get me wrong. That's what I mean to say. It would already suck enough if all of that happened, but then those venues continued to be used. What's even worse, the, the, the particularly repugnant rotten cherry on top of this terrible cake we're talking about here, is that they get abandoned. Most of these places are built on the cheap, on the rush. They get used for a fortnight, if that, and then never again. They just sit there and rot. Or they're designed to be temporary and then are used well past their life cycle, well past their intended life cycle. Um, my wife lit, went to Georgia State University, which converted the uh, athlete dorms that were supposed to be temporary structures for the Atlanta Olympic Village into student housing. And it, it was very unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Famously, Olympic Stadium in Atlanta became Turner Field, home of the baseball team there for only 20 years. There was a story in the build-up to these Olympics about, uh, quote, construction workers are living in a culture of fear and work for long hours and perilous conditions building the 2020 Olympic venues in Tokyo, according to a report from a leading international labor organization. You know, this is a story from May of 2019. At the time, they thought they had this hard deadline of the next summer for when these venues had to be built. Unfortunately, that was not the case. The games were delayed by a year. And by the time they were held, most of the venues sadly sat sat empty. But we we discussed before recording about the uh, slave labor conditions being used in Qatar to build the World Cup stadiums there for next year's tournament. These major events are often built on a foundation of shoddy labor conditions at the very, very best of all possible situations. It kind of illuminates the contradiction in a really interesting way, because if someone weren't profiting fabulously off of this, why would you force people into these unsafe working conditions to create these events? Like, clearly, it's not for the love of the game. It's clearly not for the good of the athlete or the good of society. Like, clearly, somebody is making money off of this. Otherwise, they wouldn't be forcing people to. And most times, the people making money off of this are not even the cities hosting the event itself. No, it's the IOC. <laughs> And it's uh, Visa and Nike. Coca-Cola. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's the profit model of sports, but particularly in the Olympics themselves, is just so divorced from the, la- the actual labor that it's completely nonsensical. And we only do it, I think, because we feel as a society that we have to. Like, otherwise, I don't think we'd permit it, Right. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that if you if you had told the Baron de Coubertin back in the day, like, this is what it's going to be within 100 years. I, I think even he would be like, hmm, hmm, me no. Yeah, like, maybe not. Mm. Uh, the sports writer Dave Zyvern wrote a book called Brazil's Dance with the Devil that focused on um, that, that country's in back-to-back 
effectively years of the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics. They hosted these two big mega events in quick succession and the ways that was used as a uh, sort of um, glamorization project for the regime in charge at the time, but also as a way of um, cleansing the cities in very ugly ways. And there was a lot of indigenous led pushback to those stadiums being built and, you know, broadly the prospect of hosting the games themselves, even in Brazil, a country that is famous for its love of soccer and sport. There's, you know, there's a real human toll to these events that doesn't come across on TV. Well, in which I think it's, and, and this is true for the NCAA, this is true whenever we talk about sports labor, and, and even in the professional context, that human toll is ultimately, I think a lot of us mentally put it out of the way, because it, I mean, it does ruin your enjoyment of these things. Like it, you watch that and you're thinking about the things that these athletes have gone through. I don't have the story with me right now. There was a guardian story on how many athletes were underfunded just to get to the Olympics. Like they were covering part or all of their travel costs. And some of these were from, you know, the quote unquote post-developed countries that easily have the money sitting around to do that. You think about what these athletes went through. You think about what these cities have done, the sins they have committed, because there's really no other way to put it against their own people to do this stuff. You think about the corruption at the IOC, which like I know who's been a candidate for that office uh, from Puerto Rico. And boy, if that isn't testimony for how horrible that organization is, I don't know what is. So you, you think about these things and it really does dampen your enjoyment of them. It's very hard to have fun watching these things when you think about them. So understandably, most people put it out of sight, out of mind until it's over and then they can think about it or they engage with it in some limited way. And especially in this country, it's one of the few things that you're allowed to engage with without people making fun of you. Sports at any level, Olympics, major leagues, whatever, are one of the few things that you're allowed to be super into and nobody will tell you that that's socially unacceptable. And so when you threaten that by pointing out all of these things, I think most people kind of tune you out immediately because we've taken away so much from people already. For many, many people that you know and I know, this is like the one thing they're holding on to. And trying to undercut that foundation of it, I mean, it, it seems like it's generally destabilizing. And I'm not trying to be glib here. I, I really feel for people in this regard. It definitely, I think it is destabilizing and, and it's destabilizing because sports still have this cultural cachet of being like something that brings people together and makes them feel good. And it, you know, it appeals to our need as human beings to play games, which is something that we've done ever since prehistory. And it's awesome. And it's fun to see like what the human body is capable of and what the human mind is capable of at the same time like it it can be this amazing unifying thing that we can all get around and like be part of without having to worry about all this ugly stuff but at when the sports themselves and the games themselves are built on the ugly stuff it really it has to make you question why we do these things and who's in charge that's a bleak point to end this segment on, but when we come back, we'll try to have some optimism, have some sort of solution for the problems plaguing the world of sports and the world more broadly. We'll be back. 
You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Sports! And Zoe. Sports! <laughs> In case you couldn't tell from their words, um, we've been talking for the first 45 or so minutes of this show about amateur athletics, uh, specifically the NCAA here in the U.S. and the International Olympic Committee more broadly, sort of how toxic both of those things have become over decades of being able to define what constitutes amateurism and what constitutes acceptability for athletes in a whole range of sports. During the break, we were talking a bit about, we'd mentioned Simone Biles in the last segment during the Olympic segment and the mental health struggles that she very publicly went through during the past Olympics. And we hadn't talked about Naomi Osaka, who was sort of a precursor to Simone Biles in, in this regard, um, who withdrew from the French Open and tennis because of the pressure of like dealing with the media, which was a requirement for that tournament. And so I think both of these things have resulted in more conversation about mental health and sports. And you're seeing... I, I think at least a tide turning about how we look at athletes and how we think of athletes publicly. And it seems like if we're going to build a better, healthier sports culture, that has to be a good sign, right? I think so, because what we've been talking about for the past 45 minutes is all the ways in which these garbage organizations dehumanize athletes in the name of making it okay to enjoy their labor while they are being exploited. And um, when Naomi Osaka quit the French Open, I think this was for the French Open, it may have been later on, but there's a piece in The Guardian here by uh, Jonathan Liu called We're Not the Good Guys. Osaka shows up problems of press conferences. And he, he talks about one very good point that I really hadn't thought of before I read this article, was that Liu talks about how athletes can now communicate directly with their fans without the intermedia well, the media, but without them serving as that intermediate step between the athlete and the fandom uh, through things like NFTs, through, you know, videos and highlights and social media and all these other forms of communication. And so he ends the piece on something that I think is pretty important, which is he says, and of course, there are plenty of decent, curious journalists out there doing decent, curious things. In a way, this is what makes the chronic lack of self-awareness so utterly self-defeating read the room. We are not the good guys here. We are no longer the power. And one of the world's best athletes would literally rather quit a Grand Slam tournament than have to talk to the press. Rather than scrutinizing what that says about her, it might be worth asking what that says about us. We're going to talk about some big questions in the rest of this segment, but the fact that we're talking about the fact that athletes have an innate humanity, which should be a given, but is not, because these are people whose incredible feats we enjoy. And like we talked about in the previous segment, for a lot of us, it's very hard to give that up or to think about it in any kind of critical way. The fact, the recognition that they have a right to say, I don't want to deal with that or I can't deal with that. I think if we can start from humanizing them again, we might be able to answer those bigger questions in a better way. I definitely agree. And when we're thinking about 
you know, what the alternatives are, I think it's important to emphasize things like accessibility and ethics and sustainability and, you know, all of these things that are kind of the enemy of these big events and big organizations, as we've been talking about earlier. And I think it really begins with embracing that accessibility um, I recently wrote an article where I was speculating about like what the alternatives are to the Olympics and how can we how we could as a global society give them up and not give up the good things about them. And what I really arrived at in thinking about that question was that we need to make all of these sports that we love to watch at the Olympics accessible all year round from a variety of places like in the countries where they're most popular in the countries and in locations and tournaments where, you know, we really do see that best on best competition right now on the TV in front of me on mute. I have the IHF women's world championships for ice hockey. I'm watching Finland and Canada duke it out. And there have been years where I could not have watched this early qualification, like round robin game because it's just not accessible to me. No one broadcasts it. If they do broadcast it, it's low quality and you can't find it everywhere. We have the ability to make this giant Olympic event happen, you know, once every couple of years. Why don't we have the ability to, you know, provide the broadcasting infrastructure to smaller sports in other countries throughout the world and really grow those sports for the reasons why we love sports, not to make money, but to play a game, to compete, to be together. We can do these things. We have the means. It's just we've chosen not to for whatever reason. I forget which one of you mentioned it in the last segment about the IOC, the International Olympics Committee, really having like a monopoly on a lot of these sorts of events. And I, I, I think you know, to some extent, the solution is to break up that monopoly to say, instead of this one concentrated mega event and all of the human costs and accompany it every four years, wherever it lands, it's going to have to be something more spread out, more spaced out so that, you know, these athletes have a, a chance to shine on their own merits rather than sort of in the reflected glow of this big tournament that they're all competing in. It, it's got to be something that is sustainable, like you said, Zoe, in a way that the Olympics currently are not. Yeah. And without the media circus, um, mm -hmm. like we touched on earlier, talking about, you know, Naomi Osaka and many other athletes that I know of and have personally interviewed who generally would prefer to not speak to the press just because they see it as, it's almost like a waste of their time because it's more indulging the writer than it is creating something meaningful for people to consume about the sport or about the athlete. It's um it's an interesting problem in sports writing that you'll find that the writing that you're reading doesn't really reflect much about the sport or the subject itself. It reflects more about the author. And I think that's more true in sports writing and in sports media than in a lot of other things, just because it is such a quote unquote neutral topic. Why not set up the sports journalists who cover these minor sports to have the resources to actually cover them and introduce these games to more people, I think that would be amazing. I think that would be an excellent outcome of all of this and of the kind of massive hulking web of digital media that we've created that has utterly destroyed many uh, sectors of journalism. Like, what if we could shift it and do something better with it by actually highlighting the whole spectrum of sports that we have available to us. 
I think that's a really positive vision on what has otherwise <laughs> been a bleak episode. Um, it's surprising how many times I say that on this show, but um, I, I, I think you've put it really well, and that's a good as as good a place to end this show as I think we're going to arrive to for this week. I'm Ryan. I was Noah. I am Zoe. This is punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.